You're listening to The Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. Well, hey there. Good morning. Glad you're here. Really excited to be with you this morning. My name is Tony. I serve as the pastor of young adults here. I'm filling in for Brandon Hayes this morning. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, open up to the book of 1 John. We are inching closer and closer to the end of our sermon series, the book. Next week, we'll look at 2 and 3 John, and then we'll try and dive into the book of Revelation. This week, I was uh, reminded and encouraged by one of my favorite pastors who I was, was watching some online video teaching series on preaching. And in one of the first ones, he set forth this encouragement and reminder to pastors across the world is that for the pastor, the preacher, we have the task of digging and mining through the word all week as we prepare to share and teach uh, the, the lay people, the, the church on Sunday morning. And really the picture there is, hey, I've been digging and digging and I feel like I've got a golden nugget to behold with you this morning. So that's what I want to do. Not uh, that this gold nugget has any worth because of anything that I'm going to say, but because purely of what God has said. And that's what I want to do with you this morning is behold this golden nugget that we're going to see in 1 John chapter 2. As you're turning to chapter 2, I've got a notebook or a journal in my hand this morning. Um, most of you have one of these. You, maybe you take sermon notes in them or you use them for school or for planning or whatever. Whatever you may call it, a notebook or a journal. Normally, they don't have any uh, really things special about them until you start writing inside of them. Now, this one in particular is pretty cool because it's got this cool texture and cover on it. This one was actually purchased in Africa and belongs to my wife. Now, what makes this notebook so special is, again, what is inside of it. This was a gift to uh, Sarah, my wife, when she uh, first got married. When, what year was that, hun? 2003? Yeah, back in 2003, so that's almost 20 years old. And what it is is uh, a sweet gesture from her mother, and it's a book of recipes. But on the very first page is a note uh, that I remember seeing when we got married, and I thought it was really special. Sarah's mom said this, Sarah, well, here are some of our favorite recipes. Hope you enjoy making them for your family. We are so proud of you. We are blessed to have you as a daughter. You have always brought smiles and joy to us. From your finger-sucking days to your days of being Mama Sarah to Josh and Toby, that's her brother and sister, to being the woman that you are today. We love you, enjoy cooking, love mom. Now again, normally when you have a notebook, it doesn't gain value to you until you start filling it up. And when certain things are written in it, that's when it starts speaking to you and growing in value and preciousness to you. And I share that with you this morning because I think that's exactly kind of where we find ourselves in the book of 1 John. There's a very similar tone here that John is writing to these Christians. And I think 
not only is it important for us to grasp that before we look at it, because there is a pastoral tone to this, but you can see how deeply he cares for the people he's writing to. Look at verses one and two of chapter two. That's where I wanna focus. Actually back up to verse eight of chapter one. I wanna kind of start there just to kind of get the flow of thought as we look at verses one and two. Verse eight of chapter one says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So that kind of sets the stage for what John says here in verses one and two of the second chapter, which is where we're going to focus our time. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Verse two, he is the propitiation or some verses or translations you may have may say atoning sacrifice. He is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Pray with me for just a moment. Father, we've gathered to be with you, to hear from you and to worship you. So help us now, Lord. Open our hearts and our minds to be receptive to this simple truth. Help us not to miss the profoundness of it. Help us to see the depths. And Father, I pray that people would leave here today changed because they've heard the truth, they've seen it and understood it, and it would change their lives forever. So help us, Lord, to hear from you as you speak, encourage, and challenge us in our time together this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Apostle of Love is a title that's been ascribed to John. Paul was known as the Apostle of Faith. Peter was described as the Apostle of Hope. But John is the one who loved people well, and he tried to promote godly love among the people of God. Now, if you were to study the word love in the New Testament, you would find that the Greek word is used a little over 220 times. And 20% of those 220 times come in these three short letters written by John. John loved and cared for the ones around him, specifically the Christians he's writing to in these three short epistles. Now, each of these three short letters, again, carry a pastoral tone. And we see that in the phrase, my little children, which that's not the first time. He uses that phrase seven times in the book of 1 John alone. And while the other two letters are short in nature and content, most scholars would agree that these three epistles put together, make up one unit. Now, which John are we talking about? Most of us know that there are two Johns in the Bible. There's John, the son of Zebedee and the brother of James. And he is the John that is responsible for the five books in the New Testament. The other John being John the Baptist, which is the one often most of us get confused with. So John wrote the gospel of John back earlier in the New Testament. John wrote these three short epistles. And of course, this is the John that was given the vision by Jesus and was recorded as the book of Revelation. Danny Aiken, who is a uh, president at Southeastern Seminary in North Carolina, he wrote a commentary on this book. And of these three epistles, he said this, 
The gospel of John was written to convert sinners. He wrote these three short epistles to confirm the saints. And he wrote the book of Revelation to coronate the savior. And I would wholeheartedly agree with Danny Aiken because John was an amazing author. Purely for the fact that he told his readers why he was writing, which I can appreciate as a pastor. Some of, some of the times we get to read Paul and we just get lost and confused on what on earth are you saying, Paul? John was very clear. John chapter 20, verse 31 in John's gospel, he says at the end of the gospel, these things are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. And by believing you may have life in his name. And Revelation chapter one, verse 19, John quotes Jesus when he said, therefore, write what you have seen, what is and what will take place after this. That helps us to know that John wasn't just hallucinating or seeing things. What he actually was seeing and given was from Jesus. And that's why he wrote. And in first John, where we're at this morning, while there are a couple of other sub themes we see John's words in chapter five, verse 13, where he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, which again is another way to say, I'm writing so that you would have assurance of your salvation, that you would be confirmed in your sainthood. What I'd like to do for the rest of our time is look at three concepts that are right there in these these first two verses, and what I believe make this passage so wonderful. So I'm gonna give you three things. You'll see them on the screen. I invite you to take notes. The first thing I want to focus in on and think about is the nature of sin, the nature of sin. Now, as I prepared this week, I recalled one of my professors when I first started working on my bachelor's degree in Memphis, Tennessee. I remember, I think it was my first semester, and that professor at that time, that semester, he had two classes. One of them was a philosophy class, which I took. And the other class he taught was the doctrine of sin. And he was, uh, it was kind of like a dad joke moment, but he took it upon himself to really pull the legs of the students, especially the incoming freshmen like I was at the time. And he would walk around the halls and say, hey, we're in sin every Monday and Wednesday at 8 a.m. Would you care to join us? And the first time I heard that, I was kind of like, what? And then I'm, I'm like looking in the classroom, like, what's going on in there? Like, do I want to be a part of that or do I need to leave? And of course, what he was saying was, hey, we're studying the doctrine of sin every Monday and Wednesday at 8 a.m. Why don't you come and join us? Well, for the next few moments, I don't want us to be in sin together. Rather, we'll just think about it for a few moments. If you've ever had the desire or the idea or the inkling to think and dive into the theology of sin. And not just generally, to really think about what it is, uh, the effects of sin that exist in the world as a part of the curse from Genesis chapter three, or to even think about the sinfulness of man. The best place you could start is where? The Bible, right? We all agree on that. And while there is so much to say about sin, on one hand, the Bible is so comprehensive that in one way or another, there is something about sin on almost every page of the Bible. Maybe not directly, but indirectly. 
One of the purposes, the main purposes of the Bible is God's revelation of himself to us, but it's also the unfolding of a story where he's telling us how he's dealing with sin. And on the other hand, we also know that God has not revealed all the answers to our questions about sin in our lives and the sin that exists in the world, which is why I believe God has been incredibly gracious to us in the writing of many other books by many brilliant scholars and theologians where they have focused in and written pages upon pages on the theology and the doctrine of sin. Now, I found it important to start this way because John uses the word for sin three times in two verses. And I felt it was necessary for us to kind of look at this and to define what sin is. I found in student ministry and even talking with sometimes adults, when you ask them the question, hey, what is sin? Students, young people, oh, bad stuff I do. Stuff that gets me in trouble and gets me grounded and I can't play PlayStation. While that might be true, I believe the Bible has a lot more to say about sin. So because John has talked about it at length and in in depth, if you will, over these few verses at the beginning of this first epistle, I felt it was necessary for us to think about it. But I want you to know the truth, dear friends. If we are not in sin, then we are not in any need of a savior. If there's nothing wrong with us, there's nothing to cure. Amen? Make sense? Jesus didn't come to make good people better. He came to rescue sinners from the wrath of God. And this is why the gospel has been branded as a rescue mission. And as you read the Bible from start to finish, Genesis to Revelation, you see it unfold in this way. The Bible begins with creation. It quickly goes to the fall of man where the curse of sin enters into the world. Then the subsequent results of those sins. God promises a redeemer. The Messiah is sent He dies in our place, thereby reconciling people back into right standing with God. That is the gospel. That's the rescue mission. That's why we need help. D.A. Carson said uh, of sin, a brilliant mind and theologian, he said, the notion of sin in scripture is the notion of what is wrong with the universe and therefore constitutes what it is that God is sending his son to address. So why did Jesus come? Not to make you better, to make you holy, to fix your problem. So as we consider the nature of sin this morning, I want to share some definitions just to help us maybe broaden our minds and and widen the scope of, of what sin really is. And what I did is I did a quick survey of the Bible and tried to see where it talks about sin and how it defines it. And in my study, I found that there are 33 different words just in the New Testament that talk about sin. So that's not necessarily different words for sin, but it's the words for sin and also what sin is and what sin could be. So the Bible is very clear. The words that are in the Bible define sin and explain what it is and we should take note. So here's what the Bible has to say about sin. Sin is rebellion. Sin is transgression against God's law. Sin is idolatry. It is also used in, uh, I believe it was in the New Testament, in the phrase to fall. To fall is another word that explains sin. Sin is willful defiance in reflecting God's character. 
Sin is also iniquity. Sin is an offense. I talked about that a little bit back in August when I was here uh, looking and thinking about the doctrine of hell. We deserve punishment because we've offended a holy God. Sin is also a failure to uphold God's righteousness. And at the root of all sin is pride. But most commonly, the way sin is defined, specifically in the New Testament, simply by a phrase that sounds like this. Sin is missing the mark. Missing the mark. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear that. I know what comes to mind when I say that or hear it myself. If God's holy standard is the bullseye on a dartboard and we're aiming for it, we miss it every time. But here's the bigger picture. Let's not miss this. Instead of aiming for that center in the dartboard, we're just like wandering around over here throwing this way. We're that far off. We miss the mark. God has set his standard of righteousness and holiness and we're way down here. So that's what sin is. Paul Carter, who's a pastor in Canada and he hosts a podcast called Into the Word. He said this, this is one of the clearest, I think one of the best definitions I've heard and I really like. He defines sin in this way. Sin is acting or behaving in such a way that does not conform to God's character or his commands. It's about crossing the lines that have been laid down for us by God, end quote. Now, parents, I don't know if you picked up on that last part because I surely did having three kids of my own. In a way, as adults, we're just as childish as our kids because as God has defined what is abundant life and righteousness is holiness and we're just like, <laughs> just like when you're with your kids at the grocery store. Don't you touch that cereal box and what do they do? That's sin. It's what we do every day. But don't lose sight of this because as humans, we get caught up in the thought of, why does God have so many standards and rules? Why can't I just do this? This feels good. This is fun. And God has clearly defined that those things that we think are good are not actually things that lead to true life. God's desire for you is to have life abundantly. And all he's saying is if you would do it this way, you would. So that's sin. But as I thought about defining sin, I asked myself, I, the other question I asked myself is, what does sin do to us? And since we're talking about the nature of sin, I thought it was fitting for us to examine how sin affects us. So here's a couple of more things I wanna share with you. First, sin deceives us. Satan himself is known as the liar and the accuser. And is, he's the best when it comes to deception. You can almost call him the king of deception. Sin is deceiving. Sin also cuts us off from the presence and the help of the Lord. Sin diminishes us. It causes death. Sin brings about pain and strife in our lives. Sin always belittles the glory of God. Sin mocks the God of the Bible by saying, hey, I want to do it my way. I know what's right for me. Sin robs us of the opportunity to reflect the glory of God, which by the way, dear friends, is the very reason you were created. 
You were created for one sole purpose, to reflect the image of God. And when we don't do that, we lose things. So sin steals our joy. Sin steals our joy. And lastly, sin has caused a great chasm between us and the one who has created us. You see, dear brother and sister, there is a deep value in understanding the doctrine of sin. It's not about counting how many sins you did or did not commit on any given day. You aren't necessarily any more holier because you sin less on Tuesday than you did on Friday. Your standard of holiness has been modeled perfectly for you in the person of Jesus Christ. And the mystery of the gospel is this. When we believe, when we put our faith and trust in him, if we truly belong to him, Jesus declares you and I holy, not because of anything that you've done, but solely on what he has done. Now, the reason it is important for us to think about this and just chew on it and believe it and grasp the realities of our sin is it's important for Christians to have a healthy view of sin because most people limit their understanding of sin and just being bad things or I haven't done this right and there's a bunch of things in my life that I need to fix and yeah, maybe it'd be good if I got forgiveness for them as well. But if you continue to limit your understanding of sin in that way, then you will never fully grasp the depth of grace that has been given to you in the gospel. The gospel is glorious when you realize how unrighteous and unholy sin is. Zach Howard, who was a professor at Bethlehem College and Seminary, said this, if we depend on our unassisted will to be good, we will end up addicted to our evil desires. I know there are many of us in this room who are struggling with these things. I knew as I was writing this this week that this sermon would hopefully be helpful and encouraging but also it's a sermon for myself. And I think that's one of the more difficult things about being a pastor is you have, you're given the task and the responsibility to shepherd the flock and look at this word and give them something good. You realize you need it just as much. Zach's words remind us that we need a savior. Furthermore, as John puts it in 1 John chapter two, we need an advocate. Don Carson adds this, it is important to think clearly about sin because it helps you think clearly about salvation and also about your savior. So let's do that for a few moments. Thought about sin. Secondly, I want to look at and think about the efficiency of the advocate. John talks about the fact, the truth that we have an advocate in our defense when we sin. John wants us not to sin, but he says, if you do, Know that you have an advocate. I want to think about and talk about, show you the efficiency of the advocate. Now, there is so much that could be said here. I don't want to elaborate too much, but my goal for this second banner, the second point, is because of the reminder, again, that John gives us in verse two. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Dear friends, I don't know about you, but when I stand before God on that day, whether either when I die or on the day of judgment, when Jesus returns, I am a thousand percent sure that I will be rejoicing and celebrating and jumping up and down that I had an advocate like Jesus standing on my place. I've also asked the question, 
in evangelism and talking with others about Jesus. Hey, have you ever thought about if you were to stand before God someday and he said, hey, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? What is your answer? What is your defense for getting into heaven? There's so many answers I hear often, all the time. Well, I, I tried to be a good person. I went to church. Uh, I think if people just attempt to do good in life, that in some sense, God will kind of forgive the bad and hey, come on in. But there is a biblical answer and it's really simple. Here's my answer, which I didn't write. I heard from another pastor and I said, that's awesome. God, you shouldn't let me in. You shouldn't. There's nothing good in me. I don't deserve this. But I'm depending on the shed blood of Jesus knowing that his perfect life, his perfect death covers my sins. Jesus therefore becomes my advocate. And this is what an advocate does. The Greek word for advocate is used five times in the New Testament and guess where they all are? In John's letters. Four times they are seen in the gospel of John and then this one, the last time, is here in the first, in the first epistle. And the word for advocate simply means helper. John's saying, hey, there is one who was called to come alongside you in your time of need and his name is Jesus. So dear brother and sister, we are in a great time of need. I don't know where you're at in life or what you're struggling with. No matter what it is, you need an advocate. And his name is Jesus. Because our sin is great, but his grace is infinitely greater. Amen? Now the word for advocate also carries the idea of one who represents another on their behalf. And when you think about it this way, you can almost picture yourself sitting in the courtroom. At the end of your life, God is sitting on the throne as the judge. And you're sitting there at the table knowing you're guilty. You know you deserve punishment. And in walks this guy and his name is Jesus and he comes pleading on your behalf and God accepts it. Danny Aiken, further commentary on this, on this passage, he said this, this advocate, this lawyer is sinless. He is undefiled and he is spotless in his nature and all of his actions. There is no one else like him, end quote. You see, what I've learned is this. Jesus is efficient in his advocacy of your sin because he had none. Amen. Jesus can advocate for your sins and he's a million infinitely times efficient to do so because he had none. It's one of those weird times in life where you think, hey, maybe actually having none is the best thing. Normally as humans, we're like, Hey, I need to do this. I need to get some more of this. And we go to our buddies and our family members. Hey, do you have something I can, I need to borrow this. Can I get some of that? Oh, you've got more of that? I need that. This is the one time where I'm like, the only way eternity life gets granted is if I have none. But you have plenty. And Jesus advocates on your behalf because he had no sin. Because Jesus was sinless, Jesus was able to do something that no one else could do. He could die for the sins of the world. Now think about this. Had Jesus ever sinned, which he didn't, but had he ever sinned, his death would simply be the equivalent to paying a debt to God that maybe he owed, but that's not what happened. 
Jesus hung on that cross sinless, not deserving the death, but he took it upon himself. No one put him there. He went there on his own. And dear friends, this is why the blood of Jesus Christ is the most precious gift that could ever be offered to you or be given to you. Jesus' blood is able to advocate for your sins. Paul says in Romans chapter six that the wages of sin is death. Y'all know what I mean when I say wage? Think about you do something and you earn something in light of that. So in your sin, you commit spiritual suicide. And being spiritually dead, you cannot please God. There's nothing you can do to grant your entrance into eternity, into the presence of God the Father, which is exactly why you and I need help, which is exactly why you and I need an advocate. Jesus said in John chapter 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do no good. The next chapter of 1 John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. John says, you know that he appeared in order to take away the sins of the world and in him there is no sin. In the gospel of John chapter 1, verse 29, Jesus said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Brother and sister, if sin is not a big deal to you, then I'd be willing to bet that Jesus doesn't mean that much to you either. If you think that you can defeat your sin on your own, even after you've been forgiven of it, then my friend, you fully haven't grasped the depth of your depravity. Now, if we were to stop there, we'd miss the point of the atoning death of Christ and why the gospel is indeed something remarkable. Because not only is your advocate infinitely capable to cover your sin, his death fully satisfies God's justice over sin. And there's one unmistakable truth in scripture. This is a quote by someone anonymous and I'm kind of paraphrasing it. They said this, Christ died for sin, therefore believers die to sin, and if they're not careful, unbelievers will die in sin. Jesus is the only way. The message is simple. There's a third thing I want to talk about really quick. It's the last part in chapter, uh, of verse two of chapter two. And I want to think about the satisfaction for sin, the satisfaction for sin. Now, hear me out. I'm not saying the satisfaction of sin. We all know we sin and sometimes we enjoy it and we, we think it feels good and it's good for life. But we know as followers of Christ that it really isn't. But there is a biblical concept when we think about, especially with what John says here in verse two, the satisfaction for sin. And this final point, this final umbrella is found in the phrase atoning sacrifice. Some of your Bibles may see or have a word that is pronounced propitiation. And while those two things are essentially one in the same, I believe that they communicate a bigger, more glorious reality. And here it is. The word for propitiation simply means appeasement. When Jesus died, he fixed your problem. 
he appeased the one who would stand before you and judge. Now, students, maybe even adults in the room, if you can think back to this, have you ever been under the wrath of one of your parents? I thought about this as I was writing and I was thinking of the times maybe I was a kid when I knew I screwed up big and I knew I was in trouble and I knew I was gonna experience the wrath of mom or the wrath of dad. And in that moment, the only thing you can think of is what can I do to appease mom and dad? What can I do to get out of this? How can I earn their forgiveness, right? So we normally do something, we make make amends and then things are good. But we have to remember whatever we may have done to earn that forgiveness or appeasement for that wrongdoing, it only lasts a little while because what are we so prone to do? Some kids, maybe even five minutes later, we mess up again. But this is why the word propitiation is such a magnificent word and concept in the Christian life. Dear friend, know this, your sins, the ones you haven't even committed yet, have been atoned for. Your wrongdoing has been appeased. Now, does that give you room and grace to go on sinning? No, Paul says, absolutely not. And if you're in that place, I would question you as a follower of Christ because that's not what followers of Christ do. You don't receive grace to keep on doing what you wanna do. You receive grace because you realize the penalty of your sin is death and you want out of that. And when you get out of that, you see how good and glorious God is and all you want is him. So propitiation is an awesome word. Your sins are appeased for. More importantly, Jesus died as a propitiation for the sins of the world. And here's the big picture. The word propitiation communicates satisfaction. God is fully satisfied with the payment of the sacrifice of his son when he died upon the tree. There's so much grace in that. There's room to live in the freedom of Christ and there's room to go on not sinning. And I think sometimes we forget that. God being fully satisfied with crushing his son on the cross is the reason you and I can go to bed at night knowing that God is not angry with us. Yes, we've sinned. Yes, we can ask forgiveness. And yes, it will be forgiven. But we don't have to wallow in the darkness of sin, in the pity of it. And think about the hurt and anguish it causes us. God doesn't intend or design, or he hasn't ordained or planned for you as a Christ follower to live this life in confusion and pity and anguish and pain. He wants you to see the better picture, the more glorious reality. He took care of it on the cross. Some of you know me. Well, some of you don't. One of my favorite superheroes is Batman. Amen? Okay. Marvel's cool. Batman, though, all the way. In my opinion, one of the best Batman movies is the Dark Knight trilogy, which was made by Christopher Nolan. I'm a fan of his movie making, and I think he did an amazing job with those movies. Some of you may also know the unique story of how Sarah and I got married. We met in March of 2009 and we got married in September. Totally not my style. I'm more like, hey, let's take this easy. 
Nope, we just got married. Okay, I thought I kicked my water. We met, we were getting to know each other. And within a few weeks, I found out, this was 2009 and Dark Knight, the second movie came out in 2008. Within a few weeks, I found out that Sarah had not seen that movie. And I can't get married to someone who hasn't seen that movie. I just can't. So I said, we gotta fix this. So I did what any guy would do, planned a date. We were gonna watch, actually, no, I just invited myself over to her house and I said, we're gonna watch this. She's like, well, since you're coming over, I'll make you dinner. So it was kind of like a first unofficial date. It's kind of weird. Her sister was there and it was like, we're just gonna know each other still. But I was like, the dark night's on. We gotta watch this. As great as that movie is, the whole reason behind the premise and the title of our time this morning is what is said at the end of the movie. Many of you know it. Many of you have seen it. Maybe even remember it. At the end of the movie, as Batman is trying to save Harvey Dent at that last scene, Harvey ends up dying. And in an effort to cover up all the things that had gone on because of what the Joker was doing, they decided Batman would take the brunt of the fall. And in that last scene, Commissioner Gordon, played by Gary Oldman, is eulogizing Harvey Dent. And what's cool is when you watch that, you can watch it when we leave, the way the movie and the scenes play out, it's, it's clear he's talking about Harvey. But as I watched it two or three times yesterday, I couldn't help but think he's talking about Batman. But he said this, as he stood behind that lectern with a picture of Harvey Dent behind him, and he said, a hero? Not the hero we deserved, but the hero we needed. Jesus is definitely not the hero or the advocate that we deserve. But by God's grace, he is the one that has been given to us. So, dear friend in the room, where I don't know where you're at. If, if you've been doing this Christian life for a while, or if this is new to you, or you're still trying to figure out things, can I commend this great person to you? His name is Jesus, that you might trust in him and love him and worship him because he advocates for you. I want you to know that there is a gospel that is so glorious and so awesome and so radical because you don't have to do anything to be forgiven. Jesus has done it. Now, the way you, what you do and how you respond is by believing it, accepting it by faith, trusting in Jesus and following him. That's how you receive the advocacy. Because if you don't, then your sins will not be defended and you will face judgment. But this gospel full of grace is so awesome and it invites us as Christians and non-Christians to come before God at the altar Come to the altar and lay your sin, lay your burdens, lay the weight of the world at the feet of Jesus and do this knowing that Jesus is completely sufficient and infinitely efficient to advocate for you and give you rest for however long you may be on earth. That's the invitation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time. Thank you for the word. God, thank you for the truth that we've seen in 1 John. God, knowing we owe a great debt, knowing that we couldn't pay it, 
you sent the propitiation for our sins, the perfect God-man, Jesus, who gave his life freely so that not only could we be forgiven, but that we would be restored. God, I pray for the one in the room who needs to hear, not only hear, but grasp and believe that message by faith. Would you help them to do that? God, as we sing, I pray that just, just this would be a sweet time of aroma and praise as we think about the truth that we've heard this morning and we think about how we can come freely to you, knowing that you will hear us and know that you love us and will continue to work in us. If you were encouraged by today's message, subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcasts. To learn more about the venue at Southcrest, visit us online at southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church.